Welcome to Candela, I'm Christopher Hooten. In this episode, my co-host Alan Scheller and I speak with Robert Ellswit, an Oscar-winning cinematographer best known for his collaborations with director Paul Thomas Anderson. The pair have made six feature films together to date, Hard Eight, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, There Will Be Blood, and Inherent Vice. Robert's had a storied career, also serving as director of photography on Good Night and Good Luck, Michael Clayton, Salt, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, The Bourne Legacy, Gold, Suburbicon, Skyscraper, Velvet Buzzsaw, and many more. We hope you enjoy our chat, and be sure to hit us up on Instagram where we're at Candela Podcast. That's at C-A-N-D-E-L-A Podcast. Thank you. We're joined today by Robert Ellsworth. Robert, how you doing? Fine, great. How are you guys? Not bad. Yeah, not too bad, thank you. Good. So is it an interesting uh, circumstance? This interview, we were me and Alan were supposed to speak to Robert uh, the other day, and the, and the time the time came, the time went. <laughs> we were like, oh, I wonder what's happened. We weren't, you know, weren't unduly, you know, bothered or anything. It was it was fine. We're just like, I just wonder. I hope the guy's okay. I wonder, uh, you know, did he just forget? But then we uh, got a very kind, very polite email from Robert explaining and uh wonder if you just wanted to say Robert briefly what what that day in your life ended up being that when you thought you were going to talk to us well it, that morning my wife and I are going through foster parent class to become foster parents and we hadn't actually completed all the paperwork although we'd done all the actual meetings and training and all that and we got a call that morning mm. that there was a one day old baby and the mother had abandoned and uh, could we drive across town to the hospital and pick it up and take care of it and i forgot all about you guys <laughs> and uh we, we got, <laughs> and uh and that's what happened we ended up uh picking up this marvelous little kid and uh we're fostering it and we're gonna see what happens we're really uh not getting a lot of sleep but we're really happy we were able to help and we'll, yeah, we'll, wonderful. We'll see what happens. Yeah, and very, very kind of you to speak to us in between what is presumably a punishing <laughs> kind of like cycle of three-hour naps. Well, the feeding was a feeding was an hour yeah. ago, and uh, we're you know it's a it's quite something. As juggling the kids and uh, shooting films will be as well. I'm sure it'll be an interesting thing. In the yeah. <laughs> yeah. What was great about it is the film I was on shut down in the middle of March, and so I have. Lots of free, and we're not supposed to start up again until uh, late June or late July uh, in prep again. So I have lots of free time. So that's what's made this actually wonderful that it happened now that we're able to do it because mm. we're both here. We're both home. Yeah, sure. I was thinking about how uh, how the pandemic. I mean, I, we don't really want to talk about the pandemic much at all <laughs> because these hopefully these uh, <laughs> interviews will be listened to for. Many years after people forget, have forgotten all about COVID, uh, right. but yeah. I, I was just wondering for for like for yeah, well, doing such a massive project such as making a film, I can't think of anything that is more inconvenient than <laughs> like than for the film industry that this has been because so many moving parts. And then can you? I was just thinking like for you know for a director get sourcing all the money and doing all this, and then all of a sudden it's just like no. Well, everything, you know, uh, we've shot for three weeks. It was based in L.A. And, um, you know, we completely, one day, it's a Will Smith movie. And then it was the day the governor announced that um, the schools are going to close the following Monday. 
And Will walked up to us right before we broke for lunch. And he just said, you know what? Uh, why don't we just all go home? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he was right. And we imagined we might go like Monday or Tuesday. We, had, we were in a location. If we finished it, it would have given a little cutoff that made some sort of production sense. And again, we heard over the weekend, uh, Warner Brothers just said, uh, we, we, we also just heard that Warner Brothers had emptied the studio. So even though we were shooting, <laughs> I think they weren't there, you know, for like several days, actually, but they expected us to go to work. But then I think it was just a general consensus that uh, that was it. And on Sunday, we all got a call. Um, don't come to work. And uh, it's that's what it's been. So They've issued, they're still negotiating, I think, with uh, the Screen Actors Guild and with the Directors Guild. They negotiated with the uh, international, uh, the technical unions, and they have new protocols for how we're going to work on the set, um, what that's going to mean in terms of uh, what kind of protective gear we're all going to be wearing and how we're going to, and the areas we can be in and things like that. As you can <laughs> imagine, it's going to be pretty complicated, and uh, yeah. we still don't know. We still don't know exactly uh, what's going to happen. Going to have your focus puller at least two meters away <laughs> at all times. Well, I get, yeah, I mean, uh, I think we're going to be, you know, we're probably all going to be wearing masks and and uh, probably plastic shields and maybe gloves and very restricted as to who's anywhere. And uh, it's it's going to be something. I mean, it's, yeah, it's just, I guess it's especially tricky at the film set as well, because if there's one thing we've like learned, doing all the interviews that we've done is that money and time is always at a premium, you know, no matter how big the shoot is. So Absolutely. even if uh, the process is slowed down, you know, five seconds, that is going <laughs> to, that adds up. Oh no, it's, it's there's going to be a huge effect um, just because of the way we have to work and, and how things happen on the set. Absolutely. It's not going to happen. And also they're going to, apparently they're going to restrict our hours, which um, the wonderful thing about working in England is they restrict your hours from the very beginning. You can't, there are no 12 hour days or there used to be, I don't think. Uh, but in the, in the States, that's it, 10 and 12 hour days are kind of the norm. And um, why your economy is doing better. And that may, go, that may go away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, well, I mean, one thing that struck me, like looking back over your filmography, is just how unbelievably prolific you've been for a start that you've been just working a lot and on a lot of different projects uh, a wide variety as well um yeah so you, there's a lot of a, different stuff yeah you've got a strong you must have a strong work i think because it feels like you've been in productions you know kind of back to back well i mean i think everybody tries to do that i mean I, I no we've had time off i've had time off but yeah no i like to go to work i mean i it's a real focus of, uh, I guess, of who I am and what I do. And uh, I can't imagine myself not on a set, especially it's hard to believe at my age I still do it. But, um, you know, I guess uh, there's a lot of my friends who are, uh, you know, when DPs know when they've been retired, when DPs retire, actually what happens is uh, nobody calls you. And that's how you know. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's a sad, sad truth. I mean, we all want oh, to be, we all want to go on yeah. and on and on, and then after a while, uh, the phone stops ringing, and you go, "Oh, I must be retired." Uh, I think, and that's happened to some of my friends. And, Forced retirement. Yeah, and I, I, you know, I'm very lucky it hasn't happened, uh, hasn't happened yet to me, and I'm still active, um, uh, and in fairly good shape. So, 
I don't know. I guess I'll yeah. keep going till I can't anymore. I always, there's a wonderful old DP. Uh, I, I won't say his name, but he, he, he felt he had a heart attack on the set and fell over and died on a, wow. on a, on a movie in the 1950s uh, in New York. And he was a great DP and he did a lot of films with, um, uh, well, this is a David O. Selznick movie. Uh, somebody can look it up and figure out who it was. <laughs> but I always thought, that's the way. I mean, just all of a sudden, a total surprise. There you are, you know, asking for a double and a 2K and all of a sudden. Yeah. You hit the ground. I think that would be that would be the perfect way to go. <laughs> yeah, I think go- going out doing what you love is fine. I've always said to Alan because we often we do some shoots together where we go to you know interesting places and I do the words and he does the images. You know, we've been to like you know the North Korean border and stuff. And I've always wow. said to Al, you know, I'm like if I ever just keel over and die one day, you have permission <laughs> to exploit my death to to its fullest in terms of photography. <laughs> That's how I'd want to go, probably, Absolutely. rather than just like... Absolutely. <laughs> but don't it's, take it's... him away yet. The light is perfect. Hang on. One minute. Let's wait, wait, wait. <laughs> I have to finish yeah. the setup. <laughs> but I can't be dead yet. So, Robert, I understand you um, You kind of started out as a, uh, a visual effects camera operator, right? Working on kind of, I think you worked on Empire Strikes Back a little bit, uh, E.T., the extraterrestrial. What did... um? Uh, you know, being in the in the VFX team look like back in those days when it was <laughs> a lot a completely it, different kettle fish. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of fell into it because I worked when I got out of college. I worked for a small company that did documentaries and visual effects, and they actually recreated um, uh, outer space uh, environments for NASA and JPL to demo as uh, publicity elements, uh, different satellites and stuff. So they they made a film called To the Moon and Beyond for, I think NASA paid for it. And the, as a result of making it, it was shown at the World's Fair, I think, in New York in the 60s. And they had a giant, like, series of planets they had built for this movie and a number of giant miniatures and star fields and things like that in a little kind of warehouse area. And they still recreated these um uh, real promos for NASA and JPL whenever they shot a satellite into space and they had to send something to one of the local news programs. So anyway, I started doing that working for an old, wonderful old guy named Jay Connor. And then all of a sudden, uh, Star Wars, the original Star Wars came out and, it, you know, gigantic hit. And actually it was before I was working there. That's when it came out. I was in high school. But uh, Paramount, uh, owned a thing called Star Trek. And as such, uh, they immediately thought, well, we have an outer space franchise. Let's make Star Trek the motion picture. So they put something together and the visual effects part of it, it's a long story, but it completely fell apart. And Doug Trumbull and John Dykstra in Los Angeles were called in. And I think with like six months left in the uh, schedule, they had to do a year's worth of visual effects so the film could open when it was supposed to. And so they hired everybody and anybody who was like, uh, who could breathe to work, uh, to, to go in the camera departments because everything was photochemical then to shoot these miniatures and everything else. So anyway, I went to work there and I was on Star Trek, the motion picture. And like I said, it was an enormous amount of work and I was like a button pushing flunky. And I think we had, we worked uh, seven day weeks and lots of drugs 
<laughs> and somehow we managed to get through it. And then after, like, a wonderful uh, DP on that show, uh, a guy named Mike Lawler, was uh, asked to go up to ILM, to San Francisco, and work on, I guess it's Empire Strikes Back, and I get them confused, it's called uh, Revenge of the uh, Return of the Jedi and Empire Strikes Back. So uh, he said, why don't you come with me and be my assistant? So I went up there shooting miniatures and... Uh, background play. In those days, you actually had painted backings and we had glass, painted on glass backgrounds with RP screens and images going through. And it was uh, a marvelous sort of little more sophisticated version of what was, uh, what was all in camera, not all in camera, but visual effects with optical printers and blue screens and stuff like that. So I was, what it was like for me was like being the, uh, I've said this to before to make sense out of it. If you took uh, advanced uh, math classes in high school um, or chemistry or something like that, and you were the dumbest kid in your class, that's what it was like for me. Uh, I was surrounded by truly, I think, some of the most creative and and technically sophisticated and smartest people I've ever worked with in the movie business. And somehow they just kept me there, uh, despite the fact that I wasn't, I was kind of a dope. Uh, I think I made Dennis laugh, possibly. That goes a long way. Yeah, yeah, it does. So I did. Uh, so I stayed there for that, and then um, the first Star Wars, and then I, 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 you know, I had to go live in San Francisco for a while, but I actually had a house here in LA, and I would go back and forth, and I, you know, did you know on ET and a little on Poltergeist, and then little pieces of Indiana Jones, and then back for Revenge of the Jedi or Return of the Jedi was the next one, and. And then it was, it, it's kind of like a little factory and it's as in creative as it is, it wasn't what I wanted to do and it wasn't very good at it on top of that. So, um, so I, I learned a lot and it was fascinating work. Um, and in those days when it was photochemical, it all had to be very carefully thought out ahead of time. It was very designed and the storyboards were, and it was just a, a great group of people. And I, I loved my time there, but I, I just, my, <laughs> I was happy to leave. And uh, that was it. But um, yeah. I watched some truly, truly brilliant people do some great, great things. And I watched, you know, the, the whole change in visual effects from photochemical mm. to uh, digital. You know, uh, yeah. Lucas created a workshop there to throw film away, essentially, in visual effects, uh, for the most part, uh, called Sprockets. But it's amazing that they did. They, they actually perfected photochemical visual effects, uh, you know, the kinds of things you can do with optical printers and blue screen and miniatures. And they got it to the point of it was as good as it would ever, ever be. And then they threw it all away and uh and moved into the land of computers uh and that's where well, it's things- amazing how um you know watching those those films back it's amazing how well those those things shot using miniatures actually hold up and oh i, I mean I, it's, it's such a specific skill as well i don't really know how you go about doing a tracking shot of like an x-wing through a small miniature well, <laughs> so right. well bit of the thing about all, all the sort of visual effects that involve things flying through space and all that stuff if it's not done in camera, the way everything in 2001, you know, was done in camera, was mm. none, of the, none of the elements ever overlap each other because they're all on one piece of film. They would shoot the ship, they'd background the film, and then they'd shoot the star field, and then they'd wind the film back, and then they'd shoot the planet. And if you look at all the shots in 2001, and, or they'd shoot a miniature with an RP screen and project the image into the RP screen, 
it's everything is you know they shot 65 millimeter and there's no blue screen at 65 anyway it's uh they don't they can't make color steps in 65 so it's interesting that all these things are done rocket ships and stuff like that when something's flying through the a shot or at camera or away from camera what's actually happening is that miniature almost always is sitting still and it's on a pylon and it might have little motors that make it turn and rotate stuff but what's really moving is the camera. It's transferred motion. So to make a spaceship look like it's coming at you at 100 miles, uh, whatever it is, megalits, whatever, (laughs) is the camera very, very far away, starts at the end of a long track. It's usually on an arm of some sort. And it moves very quickly, relatively quickly, because it's probably all shot in in, uh, single frame elements, at the object you're shooting. So instead of uh, and and because you're shooting against usually a green screen or a blue screen so that they have the star field later, it appears that that ship is actually traveling towards the camera and past it, when in fact what's really moving is the camera. That came into play in a strange way in the underwater sequence in, I want to say Mission 4, Mission Impossible 4, where uh, Tom dives into some sort of underwater donut-shaped secret thing where he has yeah. to steal something. Cyl- cylinder of, d- of dangerousness. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which is... For the most part, it was essentially a, a, a blue screen environment, except for there was a, a section of set, probably a quarter of the set, was real because he had to touch it. But the rest of it was all a digital creation. And he isn't really like a spaceship, like all the, like all the things that we did uh, when we used miniatures. It occurred to us um, that the way to do it uh, to do what's in the storyboards and do what was in the, in the previous was not to have Tom actually make full circuits and do all the things that he does, what it appears to do. So we're shooting against green screen or blue screen. We actually, the camera's doing everything. So he's in a relatively st- sort of static, but he's rotating and moving and he's changing, you know, he's spinning and doing all the things with his body, but his he's not actually traveling in any direction. And the mm illusion that he's actually moving through space uh is actually created by the camera moving and that's fascinating and figuring that and that and that was actually uh the guy who was the original visual effects supervisor on the show was an old ilm hand who i knew really well and subsequently ilm lost the contract on the show but he and i just immediately went oh this is all transfer motion. Whereas all the other effects people were going, how do we get Tom to go all the way around in the circle and then come back again and trying to invent all these mechanical devices that would allow you to do that. And of course we were being, had, having had the, even someone as dumb as me, because I'd been there and seen it done, realized that the right way to do it was transferred motion. So that's how that was all set up. And I had uh, Pete Romano come from LA and while we were shooting in Morocco, he shot with a stunt person, kind of all the different shots, but he free, but he, he's the diver, he's an underwater cinematographer, and he did it as a free dive. And we knew later we were gonna be on a crane and we were gonna have a moving camera on track and stuff like that. But he actually proved the concept so we could actually um, show it to Tom, who's, you know, is very involved in everything and convince him that the way we were approaching it was gonna work. And also the director, also Chris, of course. And uh, that's how we did it. Yeah, that's nice that you were able to bring some of that kind of old school 
vibing because I'm sure another DP would have like gone for. I just think it's the only time. Yeah, I mean, there's there's probably been other things that have occurred to me shooting other stuff, but I, I don't know. I was I was never really um, nobody ever thought of me as as a visual effects. <laughs> no one was ever going to hire me as a visual effects cinematographer. I guarantee. We yeah. we, we we were watching uh, There'll Be Blood of course, uh, before this call. Uh-huh. And uh, h- how much VFX was in that film? Uh, w- w- or was it all done practically? No, I think there were, there's a tiny little bit. In various shots, um, a few... Uh, when, when we see uh, the Sunday Ranch later in the film, after they've gotten oil, there's a few places where um, uh, oil wells are placed in the background, very small. Um, so you see them and it looks like there's more going on than there really was. Uh, and in places for the most part, the oil that's flying through the air, uh, the gusher and all of that pretty much is all, um, the photo real stuff that's happening on set. It's almost all visual effects, but in certain shots, they added, uh, oil droplets and stuff like that. And the oil was... Uh, the marvelous visual effects crew, or special effects crew, I should say, on that was uh, came up with um, the way to make the, the the thing that we could actually shoot up in the air and have it land on the ground and not destroy the environment. Turned out to be a mixture of the uh, syrup that McDonald's uses to make their chocolate shakes <laughs> and water. So it had a viscous viscosity and a quality to it that looked like oil. But you could, you know, it, but it was organic and, you know, you could, it could. And delicious. You could let, you didn't have to clean up afterwards. <laughs> it was, you weren't destroying this part of West Texas we were shooting in. So, yeah, and it got all over us, but um, we smelled like chocolate shakes. Wow. So uh, when it was, uh, I drink your milkshake, I drink it up. It was somewhat <laughs> of a real life thing then. <laughs> we were all, uh, we were all having milkshakes dumped on us for probably a week when we were shooting yeah. sequences. Was there not like a crazy ant problem or anything like that? When, when <laughs> no, I, I, our, our only wildlife thing, interestingly enough, was um, when they go quail hunting, uh, although there were indigenous quail, uh, because of the rules that involve animals and the ASPCA, we had to bring quails in cages and release them. And we weren't allowed to pick, I can't remember the specifics, but they had, they just, it was like we let them go and they wandered around and that sequence, um, occasionally you see a quail, but they kind of just all scattered and we didn't tr- try to control it in any way. And the result of that is that for the next two or three weeks, we would hear little quails on the soundtrack kind of squeaking various places all over the set until essentially all the rattlesnakes ate, ate them. And then that was the end of them. I don't think the ASPCA was, they're not responsible, but, you know, we fed all the carnivores in that part of West Texas for probably three weeks with the quails that we brought in for that season. Wow. Nice. Uh, yeah, I hope the rattlesnakes got a, a special thanks in the... Yeah, <laughs> they, they didn't, you know. And when, it probably <laughs> says no animals were harmed, and, well, not by us directly. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's something that, like, amazingly poetic about a uh, film about an oil man and it involving a kind of McDonald's syrup. There's definitely a symmetry in the, in the two stories. There somewhere. It's true. That's true. Yeah. So back, backtracking a little bit, I'm sure we'll come to, there'll be blood again, but you, so you started off, you know, your career, you were known for kind of these NASA movies and then you became known for working with the miniatures, but then ultimately you 
shifted to something a lot more kind of naturalistic in terms of the work you went with. So was that difficult? Because it's very easy. We've talked about this on the show before that once you start going down the tracks with your career, you just end up, suddenly you fast forward 40 years and you're like, I'm the sci-fi guy. How did this happen? But clearly you made a decision to like not. I I never thought of myself as as a visual effects person or a sci-fi person. It was just something I could do because really because Mr. Lucas was so generous um, and made so much money for so many people. He allowed me to uh, pay off the mortgage on my house. You know, I mean, that was, I, I, I mean, I, I always had a place to go for six months for like four years. Um, you know, I'd drive up there and stay in a little room and uh, drive to the Kerner Company every morning. And I wasn't, but what I loved and what I loved about movies and how I fell in love with movies had nothing to do with visual effects. And from the very uh, young age, um, I grew up at a time when old movies played on TV all the time. And I fell in love with the films that I saw on television. I fell in love with uh, the black and white, um, you know, the golden era of American film, uh, the 30s and 40s. And that's what I always wanted to do. And I always wanted to actually, from the time I was in high school, I imagined that somebody, whoever photographed these things, whoever made them feel the way they felt, that that was what I connected to. And uh, that's where my head was all the time. And so as soon as I could, and I, I, I shot two little, I was able to, because of my connections through film school, I was able to shoot two kind of low budget independent films, uh, one in Texas and one in Mobile, Alabama. And they were nice little movies and they got me connected to other things. And I think, yeah, it was like a slow progression. I'm, and then Rob Reiner hired me to do the sure thing. And then from there, I just got other little projects. And I, I spent a little bit of time as a camera operator. In those days, uh, TV in in the States, there was all the, the studios churned out TV movies, not just episodic, but there it was the, the era of TV movies, uh, you know, two and three nights, or sometimes there were series and stuff like that. And they were... Uh, every studio, almost every studio had a camera department in those days. Uh, the Burbank Studios, which was Columbia and Warner Brothers combined, had a camera department. Paramount had a camera department. Uh, even B- MGM, before they sold a lot to Sony, I think, did. Uh, Universal, I think, did. They And so they, they were churning out the stuff, and there was lots of work. And I did that briefly, but I was lucky enough to get jobs doing low-budget independence, and I stuck with that and uh, until I got hired on smaller movies that were in studio. Anyway, so that was it. I, I had no, uh, I, yeah, I wasn't known as anything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in terms it must of have been fun at that time, just going yeah. to like Mobile, Alabama and just shooting some, you know, fairly It was small. one of, I mean, it, it was the era when, oh, and I made, a, I worked on a wonderful little movie, which uh, just got re-released actually by Criterion called Desert Hearts, which was one of the, it's really the first film that dealt in a kind of an honest and realistic way with, um, uh, it's a lesbian love story. I don't know the way to describe it. A wonderful woman named mm. Donna Deitch adapted a, a book uh, called Deserts of the Heart by Janice Rule and uh, made a, a wonderful small little movie about it, which I think resonates with lots and lots of people still. Um, a period film that takes place in, uh, Reno, Nevada, and that, and that was the kind of uh, romance of films, and it kind of still is. You you, the whole movie company would check into a motel in 
Mobile or or uh, a little tiny town in Texas or Reno. And you'd all live there for 10 weeks and make a movie as kind of a family. And that's, uh, it still happens a little bit, not quite so much, but uh, those little low budget films was kind of wonderful to work on. And that's what I like mm. doing. And I was lucky enough to get enough of them that I was, you know, able to put a reel together and then people hired me on bigger shows. That was it. Yeah. Do you have any uh, any films that inspired you in particular for people to check out who are listening? Perhaps like from that you mean golden films, era, from... films that from the past. Yes, yeah, yeah. You said that you said that you were watching those films. From oh my the god! 30s and 40s. I mean, was there anything that as a teenager you were like, ah, oh, yeah, this what, really whenever, gave, you the, gave you the fizz. <laughs> when I was a little kid, what played on TV all the time, as is so on PC, were all the uh, all the American war movies. I'm not sure you anyone re- you may not know this in England, but the United States absolutely won World War II all by itself. And there were <laughs> dozens and dozens of movies made to prove that. Yeah, it was <laughs> yeah. incredible. I mean, uh, and these these played on TV all the time when I was a little kid, and I love them. But the films that affected or that I, that meant them. I mean, they were they were exciting if you were a kid. You know, they were like action adventure. But the films I stayed with, uh, kind of connected to emotionally, were things like I, you know, Jane Eyre, the Orson Welles, John Fontaine movie, which it seems kind of crazy. It's you know, it's a British, um, it's not British, but I mean, it's it's a it takes place in England. You know, the story of Jane. It's been remade by uh, Fukunaga, just remade it. Uh, but somehow the the feeling of that black and white imagery, how it affected me emotionally to watch a movie that seemed to recreate that era in another country. It was that magic of something happening somewhere else. It wasn't the world I lived in. And that was uh, movie after movie. I, and a little bit of the film noir that played a little bit too. Of course, everyone loves Out of the Past. Um uh, the John Ford movies played all the time. All the mm. um, all the horse soldier movies, you know, all the things he did, the cavalry films, the three cavalry films, Ford Apache and She Wore a Yellow Room. Um, those films played all the time. A lot of, uh, uh, but again, it was, it was like everything in the MGM library, everything in the Warner Brothers library and the Universal, they all sold them to television. So you could come home from school and see kind of an extraordinary movie in the afternoon. Um, but I got caught up in that world. I did very, very early, and that's what affected me the most. I honestly think that um, there's a, a a marvelous Ford movie that he made in 1938, 39 called uh, based on the Steinbeck book, Grapes of Wrath. And uh, it's um, you know Henry, great Henry Fonda, and uh, and this is the other thing that was uh, news to me. I was watching the movie and I was uh, talking to my grandmother. I was raised by my grandparents. I was talking to them and I was commenting about how, you know, how do they go over there? How do they make those movies? How do they go over and, um, you know, it's kind of, I didn't understand what the process was. And my grandmother pointed out to me that actually um, Jane Eyre uh, was made right up the street uh, at 20th Century Fox. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> about a mile from where we lived. They didn't go anywhere. And maybe they went to Malibu, uh, but uh, it was all done on sound stages there. And the same thing with, I realized uh, 
I was told the Grapes of Wrath, the great opening sequence where Henry Fonda walks down the road, the very beginning of the movie and walks towards camera. It's a high wide shot and he's backlit and he walks over to a building where it's like a fruit sales. And you, you see in the background that somebody's actually uh, harvesting something or other. And it's very, it's an incredible area of, you know, desolate Oklahoma. And uh, I found out much later that wasn't Oklahoma at all. That was two blocks from where I live. It was National and Sautel. And you're looking towards uh, south, towards Venice Boulevard. And the camera pans and it actually shows where my house is right now. In those days, in 1939, it was all truck farms. There were no homes. And in the background is Santa Monica Airport. And it's like, how do they do that? And that's fascinated me. And I also lived near the MGM backlots. And on the way to school, my bus went by them. And I would see these little little French villages from World War II movies and uh, the New York Street and all this. I mean, they had three beautiful backlots that were all visible from the road. Anyway, that was the, for me, that was kind of the magic. Um, yeah, they were so gifted at that in that era. And like, it was. Yeah, I feel like that was where some of the fondness in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was, for, yes. you know, just That's... being able to wander between suddenly you're in like Morocco and then you wander to a different lot and you're in like rural England. <laughs> it's still that I, way. I, I went yeah. to this crazy place in Morocco called Wazazat. Oh yeah, I don't know if you, I don't know if you've ever filmed that. Uh, and it's, we've scouted. I, we actually didn't end up shooting there, but yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's so crazy. And like they had this the set from where they did some of Gladiator, and then they had like a hangar from where they did this and that, just in the middle of the desert. And it's just I know uh, it's the middle of nowhere. Like well, who? Yeah, and, yeah. And- it was it was so weird. I, I was there on a shoot, and I and I was doing I was going from like the Atlas Mountains to where the Sahara is. And we stopped off in, the, in it because, and I was like, you know, we stopped off there overnight and it was like, what is there to do? And it was like, oh, yeah. apparently you can do a Hollywood film set tour. I was like, that doesn't sound right. But it, it, it was, uh, it was. Oh, they did a tour. Oh, that's great. It's like yeah, the universal they, tour, but you're in the middle of Morocco. How but it was just, yeah. it was just us. There was just two of us and this guy who was, <laughs> was just showing us around. And he was like, this is where, uh, you know, they, it, it, extremely odd. But, that's great. Uh, very interesting. Yeah. So at what point, Robert, so obviously a big part of your career has been uh, working with Paul Thomas Anderson on some incredible movies. Um, uh-huh. How did you guys first link up and I yeah, what was the relationship? I think, you know, um, he had a, there's a wonderful casting director who became a producer and uh, and a good friend of Paul's named John Lyons, who I'm pretty sure he introduced us. His, he had an office at the old Selznick Studios in Culver City. And I went to meet Paul and he was about to make a, I think he sent me a script or I just met him. And what we, even though we're probably, I think we're like 20 years different in age, his, in talking to him, it was very much like talking kind of what I was just saying. His father introduced him to the sort of same classic period of American films. His father was kind of a TV personality, worked for one of the networks and, um, came out here and was a voiceover artist and was a narrator. Uh, and uh, and I think he had one of the first uh, Sony Betamax machines or tape machines or something. And Paul saw all these extraordinary films from the 40, 30s and 40s and 50s. And so we had this, even though, you know, his, his obsession and love of movies was something we connected with uh, on. And we talked about his movie a little bit. 
And, you know, I just liked him enormously. I thought he was incredible and energetic and alive and filled with energy and so smart and so knowledgeable about stuff that kids, I say kids, I mean, people his age don't seem, didn't seem to be. Um, and I loved it. I thought it was great. And I actually went off with, uh, on another movie, um, with Curtis, uh, Curtis Hansen called River Wild, I think. And I didn't hear from Paul. And then one day after we finished that movie, Curtis and I were in Santa Monica going into a restaurant. And at the back table, I see Gwyneth Paltrow and John C. Riley and not Philip Seymour Hoffman, but Philip Baker Hall and Paul. And they're sitting there chatting away. And I walk over and I want to introduce Curtis to Paul because he never him. And Paul goes, oh, I was about to call you. Uh, we're making my movie and it's in Reno. And I was just about, I went, really? Okay. So that was kind of what happened. And then we went, when are you leaving? And he went, I was like, oh, next week. Something like that. So we went off to Reno. And um, and it, again, it was like one that kind of experience where we all... We all stayed at the Pepper Mill Hotel in, uh, in Reno. And, um, and it's before they sort of tore down most of the old section of the city and did Hard Eight, which was called Sydney, uh, originally with Philip Baker, uh, Philip Baker Hall and John C. Riley and Gwyneth and had a kind of wonderful time. Mm. You know, and that's where we first connected on that film. Yeah. It kind of, it comes through in, in Paul's films that, you know, he's obviously got a huge love for hit film history just in terms of all the different genres he's been able to dip in and out of. And it actually reminds me of, we, we were speaking to Bob Yeoman previously and it sounded like he had a similar relationship with Wes Anderson in the sense that he was a few years Wes's senior, but they had a kind of a good good thing going as well. Absolutely. And Paul, you know, all of Paul's movies, they're all over the... I, I think it's like... Um, you know, you always think of Kubrick, every time he made a movie, there was a, it was like a, he was in a different world. He never made the seem to make, never make the same movie twice. And certainly Paul, in a way, is like that too. Uh, in that it's, it's kind of poetry. It's hard to describe why it's so effective or why it's, why you connect with the characters in his movies. But what connects all those movies, I think, is that they're all about some aspect of, uh, family, about, People even trying to find a family or creating a family or leaving a family or longing to be a member of a family. But all of that is at the center of every one of his movies, if you think about them. And all the way through, it's it's people looking to make connections and come together and really to come together as a, as a family, as a, as a group. And... Uh, you know, Boogie Nights is, 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 uh, it's like the, a backstage American musical. It's like 42nd, not 42nd Street, but yeah, 42nd. It's like all those things where you had, uh, uh, let's put on a show and somebody has to give them money and they're on Broadway and the dancing and it's all that. Well, instead of that, they're doing a porno movie, but it's the same thing. It's a family, um, that grows apart, comes together, struggles, and at the end, uh, you fall in love with them, hopefully. Mm. Uh, and that's really what Paul is kind of dr always driving or that's what's always kind of underneath every one of his movies, all the stories he tells. Yeah, I can see that now you say it. And seeing as you mentioned uh, Boogie Nights, when you when you came to approach that film visually, what was the what were the reference points? And were you, you know, um, we watched a lot of porno movies. 
Yeah. Um, he wanted, you know, I think Paul was just, he didn't want to call attention. To, he never wants to like call attention to it. Um, except when we, it's very hard to describe. The one thing we looked at very carefully because we kind of recreated a, a, a similar shot was I Am Cuba at the beginning. The opening of I Am Cuba is this one long shot that ends up diving into a swimming pool. I don't know if you know the movie. It was made in Cuba by um, uh, a Russian director, I think. And the opening is just kind of a bravura kind of look around the this sort of uh, a series of hotels and characters and then they jump in the water and come out. And he wanted to do something like that. And I guess here's the great difference is that it's a scene that involves almost every character in the movie. And it's part of introducing them and not introducing them as much as like telling the story about what's going on at that moment, meeting them, having them interact with each other. So it's not something that you just don't even, hopefully you don't even notice what we're doing. Mm. And I think if anything sort of ties that together for all of Paul's stuff, it's like the opening of Boogie Nights. Yeah, everyone talks about it. It's like, you know, you come down off the marquee and you follow Jack's car and you go inside and you meet everybody dancing and all that. And then you, at the very end, you go in to a close-up of Dirk Diggler, but into Mark. But you're meeting all the characters and they're introducing you to different aspects of the story and you're getting to know who they are in relation to one another. And that's what that's, it's a scene. It's not just look at my camera move, look at the fabulous mm. thing I can do. And I'd say that's one of the things he's always been about. Um, he's not trying to kind of impress you with, um, God, look at this. This is just marvelous. I'm so creative. It really is always storytelling. It's character and storytelling and you know, at the center of all the decisions about how it looks. In terms of Boogie Nights, I think it was just marvelous through production design. The great Mark Bridges, who does all the all the wardrobe. Uh, it just every day it was just a delight to see what these guys would be wearing from that era. Uh, and recreating the actual porno shots to actually light them the way they were lit was almost too big a struggle for me because they're so horrible looking. Those movies. <laughs> Um, and we're thinking of the, the films Top that, uh, that were, that were sort of, you know, based loosely based on a real, a real character, uh, um, and saw all his movies and a number of others, uh, like it. And in those days there was kind of in the, in the era when they made those movies, they pretended there were stories. Um, they connected all the sex scenes with kind of, uh, you know, action adventure or something to try and make sense. Cause they actually played in theaters. Or actually yeah. theaters that played porno movies, um, you know, hardcore porno, but there were, uh, you know, some sort of connective tissue. They some, had the, yeah, they had to pretend to have like a plot and a whole vibe. Yeah, rather. that was it. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's sort of what the movie's about is about the end of that era when all of a sudden yeah. you didn't have to tell a story. Or I guess you said about the, some of the, the lighting being so horrible, but I guess it gives you options because you can then, you know, you can have a character moving from a horribly lit flat set and then then moving into the shadows and you can just play with that a little bit i i tried i don't think i was as successful <laughs> as i might have been today but there's a couple of places where that happened where um you know you know the all these characters who i kind of love each other the only sex you see in the movie is when they're making a porno movie is actually uh you know not much happens outside of that and i'm trying to think of the scene actually it's when ricky jay who plays the cinematographer is uh, 
looking through the camera. And it's the first time I think uh, Mark Wahlberg's character is in a movie and they all get kind of like, you, you see John, I think it's Philip Seymour Hoffman's the boom person and John, John sitting in a chair watching and it's uh that was kind of marvelous. That's kind of, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the, when he, when they first see his equipment uh, is kind of one of the <laughs> great yeah. moments in the movie. Uh, we don't see it, but uh, everybody else is sort of struggling a little bit. Um, that, by the way, is one. Of, it's one of the great Philip Seymour Hoffman performances. I mean, he yeah. breaks your heart in that movie. He breaks your heart in most movies, but yeah, you're oh, right. He's incredible, um, and everybody mm. is. Everybody in that film, Julianne Moore. Oh my God! I mean, yeah, just and and John. John is brilliant. Uh, everybody's kind of wonderful. Um, it was a. It was kind of a great group of people, and uh, we had a wonderful time with with Paul. He's able to make you care and fall in love with characters who are, you know, probably people you wouldn't pay any attention to or wouldn't even want to know in real life. Yeah. And some of them are pretty dumb, but he loves them and he knows why. And their hearts are all, they're, they're worth loving. They are truly wonderful human beings. The fact that they make porno and screw on camera and do all these things, it's, it's uh, it's it, what makes them endearing is what's inside, and he gives you that, and that's very hard to do, yeah. uh, and not comment on. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, that makes me brings me on to, and it's crazy, you know, because in your filmography there are so many films that are just hugely iconic films of film history, and we don't have the time to go into go into all of them so deeply, even though we could. But like, you know, you've also done Magnolia, which is a film that is so. Like well, in the heart of so many people, including myself, and that's ultimately the one about, you know, we we also now we live in a time where people are so quickly kind of thrown out the window if they're not oh, yeah. the way you want them to be. But Magnolia is is a beautiful portrait of how how kind of anyone can be deserving of your sympathy, and if you watch them closely enough, you know, you can find you can locate that humanity. And I just wonder what because that film is held so fondly by so many people i wonder what your memories are of that of oh it's, that. it's completely that it's it's the one film i think with paul i because of the nature of the story and it's such a brilliant story the production problems on that film or the production issue was how do we get this huge cast uh that all overlap each other in some way and how do we get all of the events that happen in, I guess it's what, so 24 hours or a little more than that, with all the changes in weather and how do we indicate in each of these scenes that it's sunny, it's sunny in the morning, it's overcast, it starts to drizzle, it starts to rain really hard, it gets into late afternoon, it starts to pour, it really pours, it's night, and all of a sudden it's raining frogs and then it clears up. So in every single scene with all these characters, each of those sort of time of day and weather events has to be consistent. And all the characters who overlap have to play together, right? Because you start with John C. Reilly. You know, more Laura Walters and John C. Riley eventually get together, but you start with, you know, you see them in different worlds. So how do you plan that? So you can actually shoot the film given the amount of time and money you have. And I'd say that's the one movie I did with Paul where we kind of really did, um, for the most part, get very, very specific about what we were going to do every single day. Because if we didn't, we wouldn't complete the work. 
And he was not happy with that sometimes because it means saying to John C. Riley, I know you want to go over there and do it from there, but you can't. We're going to do it. You're going to stand right there. Melora Walters is going to stand right there. And we're going to make the shot from here. And if we don't do that, uh, we're not going to finish and we have to finish. Or we, we, it was incredibly kind of organized and structured and thought through. You know, the, the other key to, and I'm sure you guys know this, it's, it's prep. When you're on the set and time is ticking away, there's an enormous amount of pressure to do whatever you plan to do. And Paul is one of the few who really is able to say, you know what, this isn't working. I'm going to go over here and do this, or we're going to change this to that. But that's only because he's able to prep and put an enormous amount of time in, in pre-production, making real decisions and also scheduling in such a way so that he knows that he has time. Um, I think a friend of mine said what the difference between, for the most part, say episodic TV and, and, feature films, it's a big generalization, is that you make a plan, you have very little prep time, you show up on the set on episodic TV, you do a rehearsal, the scene doesn't work, and you shoot it anyway. And uh, that's true. And I've seen it happen. And that's hopefully not what you end up doing in a feature film. And in order to do it that way, it means that the execution part has to be thought through as much as possible ahead of time. And Paul's so aware of that. So yeah. um, on all his films, there's probably as much time spent figuring out what to do and how to do it once we start shooting as there is during the actual production. Yeah, it's, it's, mm. it's certainly not a place for someone who's indecisive, is it, in any way? No. no. Um, <laughs> and you need someone who can just confidently say, this isn't working and cut this. Or I'm guessing the, the buck rests with the director, doesn't it? Like, it always does, and uh, in features especially. You know, Tony Gilroy once said, uh, directed um, a number of films I worked on, said uh, the hardest thing for him was knowing after he'd done two or three or four, whatever number of takes, that he'd gotten it because he knew he was never going to get back there again. Mm. Like, this shot, this is it, I'm done, let's move on. And he said that was the biggest question in his mind all the time because wow am i really am i really done do i really have it uh those are the things that um maybe you can't really you you have to feel and understand and have a certain amount of experience to know yeah, um, yeah. and you never and, really and, learn and it. a deadline <laughs> yeah well the deadline tells you but yeah, yeah, you've also you got to go, okay. you know it's like there's all sorts of people i've you know, I know people who have done those movies where, oh, my God, we came in three days uh, under schedule or we we did it all in eight-hour days. And guess what? Uh, it, it, it isn't very good. It doesn't work. Right? I mean, that, ultimately, that's, that's what you're looking at. It, yeah. You're not trying to impress the people who are actually uh, – who was it who said, uh, if the production manager on your movie is happy, then you're doing something wrong. Mm. I don't think that's always true, but uh, it has been on a number of shows. I've been on. Uh, yeah, yeah I th I've always thought that like um, it's sort of it's number of takes is really about like confidence, and there's a real like issue with ending up with option paralysis. I find so like whenever if I'm directing, like I'll 
I'd be so much happier to just get three or four good takes, each one that gives me something a little bit different. If suddenly, if you give me like 19 takes, it just becomes, you just get lost and you're like, is is 17 good? Is it better than 11? I don't know yeah. anymore. It's nicer to just have like the economy and just and that, yeah, I, be like, I've got it. <laughs> you're absolutely right. And I, I think that's, um, you know, Sidney Lumet was famous for one take. Sidney Lumet. Mm. I mean, I know on some of his films, he was uh, actors said, you know, Sydney, I need one more, specifically the verdict. But Sydney Lamette, um, because he did an enormous amount of rehearsal, not just prep, not just planning, but rehearsing, mm. is famous for that. Uh, he was very confident about when he felt he had a performance. Um, and I don't know what you think of his movies, but there's some extraordinary films there uh, that I don't think he was ever given quite the credit for or. But what a uh, what a body of work and what an incredibly economic way of working he developed. He mm -hmm. could um, I remember I can't remember the production manager in Serpico. I ended up working with him. He told me that they did on Prince of the City. There was something like one day where they did 35 locations and, and he knew exactly what the setups were. And so he went to that's a different kind of directing. And I don't think anybody, yeah. you know, I just did a film with Judd Apatow. And that will result in a stressful production manager, a stressed out production manager, wouldn't it? 35 <laughs> yes, locations. it would. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, Judd, it was, it, this goes to you talking about how many takes. Judd said, when, when Judd asked me to do the movie, he said, I, I thought, okay. And he said, I, by the way, I want to shoot motion picture film as opposed to shooting digital capture. And I went, well, why? I mean, aren't you... These are all actors and, you, you know, you love to improv and you talked about his process a little bit and, you know, they do the script sort of, but then he feeds them lines and they they riff and they go here and they go there and they go everywhere. And I thought, why would you want to shoot film? Yeah. And he said, the reason is after a thousand feet, they're kind of burned out um, and they're done. And even if they're not done, I want to reload. So you reload, I reload. The actors reload, and then maybe we'll start again. But the last thing I want to do is walk into the editing room with a three-page scene with three hours of film. <laughs> I don't want, you know. He said, "I, I, you know, I don't want to have sixty different choices for some moment in the movie. I want to, you know." He feels confident enough about seeing it on the set and feeling good about it, and he really yeah. did. And so we shot. Um, King of Staten Island, he shot on motion picture film. Uh, and he that's what he did. I mean, it was just, uh, he, he, he wanted to shoot and the rolling out gave him kind of an excuse. No, not an excuse, but a reason to say, okay, let's talk about this. And it wasn't, let's shoot for 45 minutes on one card. <laughs> and, uh, and wondering, it was just a, it was a kind of a wonderful experience and it was not what I expected would be his process at all, but that's what he did. That's what he wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And just to um to cap off Magnolia, we previously in the I think in the sure. last cinematographer we had in the show, we spoke to Wally Fister about um what it was like, you know, being behind the camera on on the Dark Knight when Heath Ledger was giving that phenomenal performance. Wow. And yeah. um, obviously Magnolia is one of the best Tom Cruise performances <laughs> of all time, and that must have been quite something to see. It was great. It was truly wonderful. We knew it was magic. And I think Tom, what makes Tom, I, I, I had a, he's a great actor. And he is. He's phenomenal. And, yes. And you can see it in everything he does. 
And uh, I had a conversation with a famous director once about Tom Cruise and Tom Hanks. And he said, um, Tom Cruise can play anybody. Tom Cruise can play because he will embrace the most despicable human being and find something at the center of it that he can go for and not comment and not feel like he has to make excuses and just play someone who is horrific or wonderful mm -hmm. or sad or charming or whatever. But he is all about character and all about making his choices. And the problem for Tom sometimes is that he has to get paid nowadays. Well, I hope he doesn't listen to this. And if he, if he, he, you know, he, he probably, he could do anything. He can do anything. He is a great actor and what a great comic actor he is. Oh my God. He could do anything. You know? yeah. And this famous director says, and, and think of Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks always wants to play someone who at the beginning of the movie knows exactly what's happened. He knows exactly what the issues are. He knows exactly what the truth is. And his role in the movie is to convince everyone else what he knows. Mm. <laughs> that's it. I, that's a I that's never really, thought yeah, of that. Yeah, I think of all his movies. Yeah. You know, that ad that he did for Federal Express, the thing with the, where he falls in love with the volleyball. Like, when was that? I don't, we're not a <laughs> oh, desert yeah, island. Anyway, but, yeah. but if you think of all his movies, they're kind of <laughs> like that. He's always saying... Yeah. Um, you know what? I'm. Uh, I, you don't understand. I know what's really going on here, and I'm going to spend you know the next hour and a half, you know, showing you I'm right, and uh, that's it. And yeah. And, and, and yeah, then, you're right. And it's the fact that Tom Cruise doesn't have that that means you know in Magnolia that scene where he does finally oh. break down because he's lent so far into being a complete jerk for the rest of it. It comes as such a shock. And if it had been you know a, a performance with a tinge of kind of self awareness, it wouldn't have worked in the same way absolutely he's not at all playing he never plays that in a self-aware moment in the movie he is he loves the fact that he's this scoundrel um mm. that his character i mean we shot commercials um that i don't think are in this i'm pretty sure they're not in the movie where he you know does these tv spots i think they play in backgrounds in a few times where he plays this sort of despicable human being i have all these stills that i shot all through pre-production where he's hanging out with leering at girls and doing, which we're going to play in posters and stuff like that. And he loved, you know, and it's not who he is in any way. I mean, he really isn't. Yeah. He's not that guy, but he can play it. Like I said, he can play anybody without any comment, without any, without putting air quotes around his performance. Yeah. Um, he's marvelous that way. And just, and, and also needless to say, the hardest working man in show business. 100%. Probably. Um, speaking of yeah. uh, magical performances, I just wanted to ask, uh, like Daniel Day-Lewis, in, in going back to There'll Be Blood again, just briefly, um, I have no idea how it works. Like when you've got an actor like that, who's obviously so brilliant, um, do you just let them roll with it? Or do you, you know, is, is it the kind of thing, like, like that scene in the chapel where he's screaming about how he abandoned his boy. Um, like I'm guessing that that's not an easy thing to just do again and again and again. Like it there are not a lot of takes. I mean, uh, once, no. and, and if you look at the way that film is, is sort of put together, um, it's, there are not a lot of setups. I mean, the other part of, of Paul is, uh, of course that he's not going to shoot a four page scene with 12 setups or two cameras or any of that. There really is a thoughtful process of like, where's, what is the space this guy's in? 
and where do we want to feel he is and where's the camera and all of that is part of you know his filmmaking awareness and yeah there aren't a lot of takes of daniel day lewis doing a whole lot i mean there there's probably more takes of us walking around <laughs> things that you can do easily but when there's a performance moment uh yeah um the thing in the chapel is astonishing um but, uh, you know, I, I would say if anybody can do it over and over again, it's Daniel Day-Lewis. I mean, he's, you yeah. know, and, and his, I, I told this to Paul, we, there was a, you know, he's famous for sort of just being this guy on and off camera. Um, and he's not crazy. He really isn't. I think he just wants to hear that voice that his kid, he doesn't, he doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've worked with actors, British actors playing Americans and, uh, you know, as soon as you cut the, their British accent is back and, you know, they're just whoever they really are. And Daniel's just in a different world that way. And it works for him an enormously, I, I ran into him. If you, if you were, we were staying in a little tiny town in Texas called Marfa. And I ran into him in the supermarket once and he was, I was picking over some fruit and he, I just hear him. Be, oh, don't, you don't want to touch those. This is terrible. Don't, don't, Robert, don't do that. Don't do that. And I was like, Oh my God, it's, it's uh, Daniel Plainview giving me instructions on what fruit to make. And then later, at the, at the very don't end of it, that banana but, he's not, rubbish, but it's, just, me. it's just the voice. I mean, he's not. And uh, later yeah. on, there was a, um, we all got little awards from the New York film critic. And I was, uh, there's a dinner in New York and I was sitting next to Daniel. And, you know, his very eccentric clothing um, Anderson and Shepard makes these wild plaid suits for him and he's got a number of earrings and uh, his hair was all kind of wild and he sat down next to me and he went Robert and and he sounded Irish I guess or to me I'm not that great with identifying British accents but it was yeah. like I felt oh my god I'm meeting Daniel D- I was around him for eight months and I, I feel like I'm, I'm I'm meeting him for the first time because I'm seeing he was just Daniel Day-Lewis instead of whatever that is, instead of Daniel Plainview. Mm. And uh, it was uh, it was wonderful. <laughs> it was like, but, but uh, oh, what was it? Tom Wilkerson said, when I, I, I got an award and uh, I was going to thank Daniel. I looked out in the audience and he wasn't there. They had a seat sitter, which they do in these award shows, where they have somebody come in. If you get up and leave to get, have a cigarette or have a drink. They have someone take your seat. So if there's a shot, there's no empty seats, right? So there's this uh, this Asian-American guy is taking Daniel's seat. And he's sitting next to Daniel's wife, Rebecca. Um, and Tom Wilkerson, and I tell Tom Wilkerson this, uh, and he goes, oh, Robert, you had the greatest opportunity. And I go, what do you mean? He said, you could have said, Rebecca, your husband is such an amazing actor. He's turned himself into an Asian-American. <laughs> How does he do? You know, I said, if I'd had that presence of mind, you know, well, thank God I didn't. That would have been a horrible thing. But anyway, that's, that would have been a, a YouTube been sensation for years. That's, yeah. that's, that's Tom Wilkinson. Yeah. Um, wow, I love I love that the scene sets. I would love to just I would love to do that for one evening, just see what conversations you end up having, just uh-huh. just parachuting into people's tables. Well, well um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, one thing about the film that Chris and I both both noted. 
separately was was the use of wide angles in the film um and uh, yeah and the choice of like instead of shooting coverage just being like you know what this is a powerful scene but it, it can work from i think that's 30 feet out we don't need and, to be in there and, on the and, faces. And, and the scene that really struck me as as it being interesting uh lens choice was uh the scene where he's reunited with his son and he's by that pipeline that they're mapping out and it just and it's like they're almost in like an inso- inconsequential composition point of the screen almost just like over in one third of it and like it's just this big weight like wide and that's the big reunion and i thought you know that, that's that's interesting and 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 obviously the pipelines in the foreground which i think it's kind of like visual storytelling mm. that's i don't know if that's that was a thing that you that I, you were planning on doing but oh it, absolutely i mean i i think that what what and i could say what paul's right i said so many things but what he's so aware of is the the space in the scene, the space in the shot, that that you know, I I've worked on all those movies where there's two cameras and there's eight setups and there's a page of dialogue and no one you either don't trust the actors or you don't trust the script and body language means nothing and it's all about close-ups and medium close-ups mm-hmm. and people talking to each other and that's the sort of you know, that's the world we've lived in because of all the sort of, uh, lots of it is because of episodic TV from years ago, but a lot of it is that people don't, uh, one of the things is on set, they're looking at little monitors that are this big. They're not seeing it on a big screen. They don't imagine mm-hmm. what it would look like. And they don't have the confidence that they have a scene unless they can go in the editing room and create one. And I think that's, it's, it's, Slides back and forth. I mean, I'm, it's hard to generalize. Everybody isn't like that. But Paul is the opposite yeah. of that. Paul will never put a scene together um, imagining that, oh, you know, I'm going to end up with 12 shots and I'll go in the editing room and find out what's really going on here. Mm. The space that that, you know, it's emotionally, you want to see their body language. You want to see how they relate to each other. Here he is, this reunion and how angry the kid is and how Daniel deals with that and what the, it's like yeah anybody else would be like it would be you know we would go in and we would yeah, come yeah. Really close and, and it would be maybe it would be different I'm not sure it would be at all any more emotionally affecting you're standing there and you're watching from a distance you're watching two people you know everything about them up to now and you see them and it's deeply moving because you're not in their faces because you're not standing three feet away from them because you're watching it the way you would see something happen in life that was so emotional. You couldn't like be right there. You had to be a little bit further away from it and it affects you even more. That's something that's hard to, how to, you know, there's no, there are no rules about any of that. You know, it's not something, it's not something you can learn. Um, And I think it was truly, you know, it, the films of the 30s and 40s, we talked briefly about, um, what they had going for them was uh, stuff like that. And it grew out of the, just the mechanics of how films were made. They didn't have reflex cameras. They couldn't look through the lens. They looked through side finders. Um, there was very, very difficult to do complicated moving shots or push-ins or stuff like that. And oftentimes they knew they were going to be on a big screen. There was no such thing as television. And they could imagine the space of the film playing out in different ways. And you see all sorts of movies, and John Ford especially, 
where scenes play out in what we call cowboy sizes or full figure sizes, where you're just above the knees and seeing four people standing there yeah. interacting with one another. And he, I, I actually with uh, my, Curtis Hansen was a very good friend of mine and we went to see, she wore a yellow ribbon, pretty sure that was it. And they'd remade at UCLA Film Archives, they'd made a brand new print from a 35, from the uh, three color, uh, the three color black and white technicolor strips they'd reconstituted, made a new negative, made it just a stunning print. And we went to see it and we're sitting there and about 40 minutes into the movie, there's a scene where uh, Wayne goes to an Indian camp and gets off his horse and has an interaction with two old chiefs. And it cuts to a shot of Wayne like this. And Curtis and I kind of went, whoa, we just realized that was the first close-up in the whole movie. That was it. Mm. It's <laughs> it, That was the first close-up in the movie. We kind of looked at each other. And that he's, and there are lots of moving shots. There's lots of, but um, that's something that, that grammar, that kind of film grammar, kind of slowly changed in a good way sometimes, but not always. And it's almost all gone now. And Tarantino can do it. Um, some people love it, certainly West Angeles. I mean, the, the really fine, the wonderful directors that we all know, know that that's, that, that's a, an arrow in the quiver you can pull out. That's something that works. If you have, yeah. if you trust the script and you trust the actors, the Coen brothers, for instance. Um, yeah, and seeing someone being, you know, kind of emotionally taken down a peg like from a distance in their body is just as interesting, if not more than seeing it in their face. Yeah. And similarly, I was thinking about um, in, you know, one of the final scenes in There Will Be Blood where, you know, uh, Paul Dano's character gets pulverized with the with the bowling pin. Like conventional wisdom would say, you know, do a POV shot from Paul Dano's character with <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis coming raining into the lens, <laughs> like raining down. But actually, if I remember rightly, it just holds on the wide and you're just watching He's, this man just get crushed. And also it's... More powerful, in yeah. He's, with he, his teeth, he's hitting d- down like towards camera. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, um, yeah. I mean, um, those are those are wonderful choices that I think that Paul's able to make instinctively in places, and he sees. Um, and and I again, I think it has to do a lot with also his awareness and knowledge and of uh, American film culture and European, every you know, world film culture, just the way movies are made. You know, Kurosawa. Mm. I mean, you look at sit through Tokyo story sometime and look at those shots and look how effective they are emotionally and how you connect to those people. And it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's a very different way to make movies and, um, and incredibly engrossing for me. And I, I know that one of the things that comes up all the time is like the younger audiences, you know, they're watching movies on their phones and, and uh, they don't, kind of react to that very well or or it doesn't mean as much or something like that and maybe that's true and we'll all be dead soon and then they can make movies where everything <laughs> was in, in a very different camera style but you know i i hope that that doesn't go away and um you can yeah yeah you can now yeah. Sh- you can now shoot a movie on a phone and then watch one well watch they've shot them on phones they're, they're actually fantastic it's crazy I mean, it's, it's gonna happen it's happened already you know, shoot, I did yeah, a commercial yeah. um, that was an iPhone commercial, which we shot all on the iPhone 11. Um, 
and it was in the one in the snow. Yeah, yeah, in the snow. And it. Oh, because uh, I was going to say they had a seriously good cinematographer on that. The, <laughs> well, I, <laughs> I really contributed did. very little, but it was a great sequence, and it was really beautifully designed. Uh, the stunt people were fantastic, and those kids were amazing. Those parkour, they were all great acrobats, and it was marvelous. But we had a great location. And uh, yeah, you could make Good a movie lighting, now. You could shoot with the iPhone and absolutely make something that most people would sort of accept. I think all the way through. Mm. Yeah, it, it was. It is mad that. For, but <laughs> I think someone pointed out. You know, yeah, you can make it with an iPhone as long as you have you know a load, load of dollies and uh, <laughs> we did. And, we <laughs> and, and we just had we had the 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 the, the uh, what what I what Apple said was. We could only use consumer products. So we had that sort of oh. cheap little fake steady cam thing they, they make that you hold in your hand. <laughs> and the dolly shot Not that opens enough. it is sitting on the, sitting on the sled. And I, I'm trying to remember it was the stunt. I can't remember who it was, but I think it was the guy who, did, who was this, the, the stunt coordinator. He's just being pulled backwards on a sled. There's no dolly and there's no crane nice. all the way through the movie. There's nothing. It's just walking around with, we're sort oh, of going wow. in and out with this sort of, you know, $80 handheld, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, all consumer products, nothing ah, sophisticated yeah. all the way through. I respect the hell out of that. This is, this is a smart wow. decision. Okay, it would well, have been quite, yeah, would have been buffoonish if it had like a steady cam operator with the iPhone strapped yeah. to it. <laughs> Um, a, f- a few more questions yeah. for you, Rob. I'm conscious of your, your time today. There's just there's so much to dig into, but um, I did want to ask quickly about um, the rain of frogs in Magnolia. Talk us through on a practical level how that how that worked. Raining wow. frogs from the heavens. I mean, the real frogs. When we were doing outdoor frogs, um, <laughs> we had the, the special effects guys actually. <laughs> the beginning of the movie. To tell you this horrible story. We, we uh, somehow we bought a frog, a dead frog from um, the scientific. The people who provide dead frogs to high school students, you know, they come frozen and then they, and they're in a place. And um, I remember our prop man going up on top of a crane and dropping it. And uh, it was uh, kind of unremarkable. It, it didn't look like anything. And uh, we realized it was going to work like that. It bounced. And we had a lot of marvelous fake frogs made that looked like frogs and that we mm. – and then the hardest part for me, quite honestly, because uh, there are some scenes when it, when it hits John C. Riley's window on his car, his front windscreen, as he's driving, and they're actually being manipulated as they slide down. They're little rods and things like that, which were taken out in visual effects. But um, the hardest part was, uh, I'm trying to remember who the effects people were anymore. I'm so embarrassed I can't remember. Um, they had paint guns uh, that shot the, the sort of very big paintballs and also guns that shot metal balls. Uh, and they would shoot them into, uh, the cars, break windows, sort of the sequence where, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman goes, Oh my God, it's raining frogs. He looks out the window and you see the swimming pool. All of that stuff is interactive. There's real, uh, hoses under the water, shooting the water up and down. There is people on cranes firing paintballs and things into objects and stuff. And on the street, when you go outside before the car crash and you see that big street, I think that is actually on Magnolia Boulevard. I can't remember. Um, the hard part was all this interactive stuff, bushes moving, cars, uh, parked cars being hit, stuff hitting everywhere. There's always a little bit of an enhancement. 
adding frogs in post, but I had to probably unlike any need more frogs. Yeah. Probably <laughs> unlike any other night exterior, we had to fill in all the areas that often you just let go black. You know, you do kind of a big night exterior lighting setup where you pretend it's what's really doing the lighting or the street lights and it falls off into shadow in various places. But in order to make the interactive work, we had to take lots and lots and lots of little units. And when all the different bushes that were shaking and all the parts of the street and the cars and the sides of buildings, we had to actually just add light for all these little pieces so that in when the frogs were added or we saw the interactive work happening, um, that it was lit. I couldn't just do a night lighting setup. So that was the hardest, I was just say the hardest part, it was the, the thing we had to be most careful about. Um, and a lot of it is digital frogs. Some of it are the sort of fake frogs falling through the foreground. Um, and then the sort of frog ballet that happens. There was a sequence in the movie that was not, we finally didn't do it, but Paul imagined uh, right before uh, Philip Baker Hall gets hit with a frog that there's a ballet, a Busby Berkeley musical sequence where all the, we were up in the sky and we're looking down at the earth and looking up and all the frogs coalesce. And I think, I think Letary did an animatic. All the frogs get together and they do kind of these uh, marvelous geometric shapes and patterns where they move about and it was like a Busby Berkeley musical number. And it was ultimately um, going to cost so much money that Paul just decided <laughs> I'd rather put the money into the music, and uh, it went away. But yeah. fair. I love it. A producer come like, like Paul, your frog ballet. You can't, you can't have your frog ballet. So <laughs> I think he was happy not to. It was a, it was a hat on top of a hat, as they say. He didn't need it. Yeah, yeah. It would also be so. I mean, uh, there's there's so many great films. I mean, I think people should check out Michael Clayton, which is a film I really, really love. People don't talk about it that much, but I think it's really It's great. a wonderful film. Um, it truly is. Yeah, yeah definitely. And um, But I think one would, would be remiss not to touch on because um, Alan's, you know, shoots entirely in black and white pretty much. And uh, obviously you made Good Night and Good Luck, which I believe you shot in color and we then did. desaturated, um, right? We you, shot color kind film. Kind of interesting, yeah. you kind of, yeah, how you, how you found that and how you felt. Oh, presumably you had a monitor with it in color and a monitor. We actually, we actually, saturated. we actually turned the color off on the monitors too. Um, yeah. I think there was, um, you know, there's no way to shoot. There was no way the beautiful black and white stock, uh, which they may still made at that time was, uh, the number was 5231, which I shot in film school a lot. And it was, uh, exposure index was very slow. It was, I think 6480 or something like that. And it was impractical to do in our interior locations and light realistically, at least for me. And uh, I knew I had to shoot color stock. And also, you know, there was a little bit of a concern that maybe it'll have to come out in color in Europe the way that I think uh, uh, the Coen brothers had to release a movie like that, I think. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Europeans can't handle black and white, man. We yeah, have to have everything I, in color. I, I, whatever it was. <laughs> what is this? What is this? I, I don't this. Oh. No, I, I don't, no, no, that may be an apocryphal me. story. <laughs> but um, I looked at 52. We shot 52.31 and the other stock is 52.22, which is what all, most of the Woody Allen movies, I think, were shot. The black and white ones that, uh, that uh, Gordon Willis shot, where it's 52.22. It's ASA 200. It's a little faster. Well, the, the color stock... Um, is 400. 
uh, I think it was 5219 was what we shot him with. And it was just gave me more flexibility. And it just seemed like uh, I did a, a little bit of testing. And, uh, you know, all you do when you go in the digital suite is there's a knob, it's saturation, and you just turn it to zero. And then it's black and white. But to get the contrast right and to figure out what it should look like on the set, um, I shot... Uh, and to actually balance it or to actually make it look right later, we shot a roll of 5231 and undercranked it on a, a number of the sets where I wanted to see what, because we didn't have the exposure to shoot at 24 frames. So when I say undercranked, I shot like two frames a second or three frames a second. So I'd have the correct exposure <coughs> on a piece of black and white film that I could look at in the uh, digital suite later and feel like I wasn't cheating the contrast. I don't know why I felt that was so important, but for whatever reasons I did. But the other great thing is uh, Jim Bissell, the great production designer, we were talking about how to make these sets feel monochromatic, but come to life. And I remembered hmm. an old time production designer came to my film school and talked about how they did episodic TV in anthology shows like Alfred Hitchcock Presents and, uh, uh, um, the Twilight Zone, where every week it was a different set, a different, you know. And this is the days when all the studios had scenic departments and they had standing sets and then you could order, you know, they had pictures of what they looked like and production designer could say, I want this house, this building, this interior. This. And they'd walk through, this is the designer saying this, and it, these yeah. shows were shot in black and white. And they had a black and white grayscale from white to black with like 10 values and they had numbers on them, one through 10. And he would walk over to say the wall and he'd write three. And then he'd walk over to the baseboard and write two. And then he'd walk to some other wall and write six. And then he'd, so the paint department would come in and they would just go, oh, okay, that's three. And they would paint it that gray. And it was all achromatic. When wow. I say achromatic, there's no color at all between white and black. So all those sets were actually painted so you could predict accurately how they because if you do color all the colors register different in black and white and it was a wonderful way to work and jim went oh let's do that so he did that so the whole set all the way through the movie and most of it was built on one stage at the um cbs radford lot um with the exception of a few sets few locations uh he painted that way and I think that was, uh, and then the only thing is uh, Ms. Frogley's costumes, you know, we're making period costumes. So we weren't always sure how they would, because they couldn't be black and white. And we all weren't always sure how they would record, but that, she did such a great job and they look fantastic in that. But I was just by taking the monitor, tuning it to zero. And then we had two looks to that film because I kind of wanted it, because of the era it it took, takes place in, I wanted the stuff in the offices when they're working to feel like it was photojournalism from Life magazine that they hired some Magnum photographer to come in and shoot Tri-X. It's just overhead lighting, it's fluorescent units, it's real practicals. And that's what the space feels like, which would be very different from when they're sitting in the movie theater looking at dailies, uh, which we had real, you know, daily, we had real 35 millimeter projection going and 16 in another scene. So that it was all done in camera. And in that little screening room where they're looking at dailies at the beginning of the movie. And also on the set where Edward Murrow does the show where the great uh, David Strathern is sitting to recreate the look of that show 
it was very flat. It was all done with giant, I had pictures of giant banks of fluorescent lights. And in those days that was, and I knew that wasn't the right way to go. So we did a, a completely different thing. That's the only thing that wasn't kind of accurate. We, we did more of a dramatic old fashioned uh, kind of black and light with shadows with the big V in the background and stuff like that. So it had a more of a, um, I guess an old fashioned kind of thirties film, not film noir, but at least a kind of contrasty look to it. So it looked theatrical mm. as opposed to the sort of realistic photojournalist style, the rest of the movie, we had a very theatrical look to his show and to his set. So those were the two ideas that we, we played with all the way through. Yeah, I remember it being when he's when he's on the mic, it's all you know silhouettes and smoke billowing and stuff. But when they're in the talking the talking turkey, like back back in the offices, it's a bit more it photojournalistic it, and documentary. Yeah, it was style, it yeah. was yeah, that was the idea. And and uh, all with you know uh, it was I think almost the whole show was two cameras. Uh, Colin Anderson and me looking through eleven to ones at right angles to each other. Which was, and, and we had enough time on those because we were in one location. I had enough time to pre light all those rooms. So we could just a little bit of playing around, we could create enough contrast and shape in some of those scenes, even shooting with two cameras. Never like this, never looking in the same direction, but always across. And I think it gave, uh, and, and of course, uh, Clooney, George is sitting, uh, oftentimes he has a little monitor like hidden, like by his feet or something. <laughs> so he's watching, even when he's on camera, he's not, you know, he's very good about not being on camera, but, or not doing it when he's on camera, ideally, but, you know, he's a lot of the scenes and he's kind of watching and looking. And, um, it was a really, it was a really fun experience. It was done very quickly. I think it cost $6 million and I think we shot 24 days or something like that. But it really was a great, a great achievement. Jim Bissell, I haven't mentioned production designers enough, but, uh, you know, Jack Fisk, who did uh, There Will Be Blood, and, of course, Jim Bissell, one of the great, uh, who I've done uh, quite a few movies with now. Um, you know, their contribution. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. With this podcast, you know, we've been trying to sing the praises of cinematographers who sometimes don't get as much praises they necessarily deserve probably production designers are the next get, the next get, people get, who need their yeah. time to show yeah. any production designer fans out there you've got to start a podcast <laughs> they never do and you know Bissell and here's a great one Bissell got nominated for an Academy Award for Good Night Good Luck that movie cost nothing alright no one no production designer um all production design academy award nominations are all the most beautiful period movie or future you know it's hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on sets on design that's you know and jim i don't i can't even remember what his budget was but we shot we actually just shot into the stage the real stage at at um uh, we just used the corner of the actual stage with the real ticking on the wall still from the 1950s probably was where we w- was where he designed the um, the interior of the CBS newsroom and he created the it's completely unrealistic or completely not accurate the CBS newsroom where they wrote the show and where they did the show were in two different buildings all these things and he combined everything so that while you're having coffee or at the coffee room, you can see all the way through the space to where they write, where they're sitting at their typewriters and writing the news and into the control booth and then out onto the stage where you see the actual show being done. That was all his creation. And it allowed George to walk through that space and play scenes in ways 
um, where it didn't feel like you were in these like cramped corridors and, and also connect the space so you could have backgrounds that felt alive and felt like you were in one place. And, and in reality, of course, they weren't. They weren't in one place at all. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Well, listen, uh, Robert, I'm conscious you've got to go and feed a, a newborn in a few minutes. <laughs> we better let you go. You know, we didn't even, we didn't end up with time to, you know, we scratched the surface really. You know, you worked on The Night Of, an incredible HBO show. You did Nightcrawler, which I enjoyed a lot. Um, you've worked on a lot of action films as well. Born Legacy, Skyscraper, Mission Impossible. <laughs> Are there any any too, films yeah. that we, we didn't get round to talking about today that you're you're proud of? No, I, I mean, I'm so great. Um... You know, there's none. I'm not. I mean, I there's a lot of, of silly <laughs> things that we all end up doing, and uh, you know, I've been very, very lucky. I, I don't know what I can. The, the first film I worked on in England was a strange little movie that cost very little. Um, you remember Steve Woolley? Remember Palace Pictures? Remember those guys? They actually made the Crying Game. Nice. Gosh, you guys, it's English. It's English film. Um, <laughs> And uh, I, I, there was a wonderful book uh, called Waterland, which won the Booker Prize and uh, years and years ago. And a f- really good friend of mine was hired to be the director and uh, of this little story, uh, Jeremy Irons and uh, Sinead Kizek, his wife, and uh, Lena Henley and some other people, Ethan Hawke's in it. And it's a story about a school teacher Um who uh, in present day in, I think it's in London, and it goes back and forth in time from when he's teaching in his class and seeing him in the past uh, before and after the, or right after the Second World War, I'm trying to remember what the time frame is. Anyway, it's a very unusual movie and a wonderful, it was a wonderful experience the first time I worked in London. It cost no money. We shot in the Fens. We had a wonderful cast. And I don't think um, anybody occasionally, I don't know that it shows up, but I just, I have wonderful fond memories of it. And I think a lot of it really works. And Jeremy Irons and Sinead are just fantastic in it. Um, Anyway, that's one movie that nobody ever sees. I would say very quickly, check that out. You know, I mentioned the film briefly, it was Desert Hearts, right? And there was a Criterion. Mm went back and let me retime the whole thing because I never got it right for all sorts of reasons. And they re-released it as a DVD. And they also had a special screening. It was the whatever anniversary it was, 30th anniversary of the making of it. And it played at uh, Sundance because that's where it premiered. And then they did a screening at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And like I said, it's a, you know, it's a a lesbian, it's a a story about two women who fall in love uh, and no one dies. I mean, I think that was the unique part mm. of uh, that period. Every time you made a film about uh, uh, the, the, the love that dare not say its name, uh, someone had to die or commit suicide. Someone, Somebody had, yeah. you know, there had to be a, yeah. an unhappy ending was all in store. So this was, it was unique and in a, in a way a marvelous movie. And the actresses were fantastic, Helen Shaver, Patricia Charbonneau. Um, and they screened that movie at the Museum of Modern Art. And I went to the screening. And at the end of it, and I look, the audience, of course, is filled with lots of gay women. And at the end, um, they wanted, you know, the, Patricia was there and, uh, and Helen and Donna Deitch who directed and run it. And everyone, of course, wanted to talk to them. And I stood there kind of off to the side. I, you know, and I worked on the movie. Uh, she introduced me. And all these women came up to me and they said, because they really wanted to talk to Donna, but they're just because I was involved, they started talking to me. This movie 
had the biggest effect on my life you could possibly imagine. This movie changed my life. I was wow. all alone. I felt like I was, uh, you know, I lived in a small town in the middle of nowhere. I had the most miserable, you know, childhood. I was, I saw this movie. It made me all of it. Dozens of women emotionally mm -hmm. connected to this film in a way that I don't think anything I've ever worked on. And I almost, it yeah. almost brought tears to my eyes. I mean, they were absolutely, and there's a, they were saying, I found this movie uh, VHS of this late. It's not what they saw it when it opened. These are women who found the movie later and who said, I thought, I yeah. thought there was no one like me. I was, you know, da, 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 da. and it's just, um, you know, it's a frank and honest look at this relationship between these two women. Um, and it's not, it, uh, well, yeah, it's I mean, not the greatest movie. It's not out, yeah. brilliant filmmaking in any way, yeah. but it's a just, um, heartfelt and wonderful and honest and uplifting, I guess. And very, very, so anyway, I've never had a group of people at a screening come up to me and tell me that a movie I worked on affected them that deeply. And I, I, mm. I want to, you know, th that was truly a, a marvelous moment for me. Yeah, well, that's fascinating because obviously, you know, um, Call Me By Your Name when it came out a couple of years yes. ago, which brilliant movie. And obviously, you know, one of the thing, the big talking point was like, hey, here's a movie about a gay relationship that doesn't end in, you know, someone Tragedy. dying of AIDS or whatever. Exactly. So, yeah, so the, you, you were making a film that, you know, in a similar way, wasn't just all about death and despair is is, is uh, so much such a many years before is interesting. It was. And I'll, and you know, it, we'll be sure to it check was it wonderful, out. too, because we were shooting in a kind of a unique place in in Nevada, which isn't isn't there anymore. They've torn down most of Reno, sadly. But yeah, it's a, it was kind of a, one of those wonderful experiences. And again, it's like that era when movies cost nothing and you went someplace and the entire crew stayed in one cheap little motel and you felt mm -hmm. like a, a family. It was kind of a great experience all the way around. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks so much for your time. Oh, today. you're so uh, welcome. It was a pleasure. Fascinating talk Thank to you. you so much. All right. yeah. yeah, thank you, Robert. And uh, yeah, and good luck with the with the baby and parenthood. <laughs> uh, yes, we'll need it. I think we will. Thank you again. All right, Have guys. Have a good day. See ya. <laughs>